Queer Relationships, an IM clinic podcast devoted to helping you, the LGBTQ plus community, create the love lives and relationships you crave. Moving to a new country, you know, you really need to be able to find community and supportive environment. And I was hoping to find that within my team. But I remember after we'd had like initial conversations of me coming out and talking about how we were going to work with that within the environment that we had, one of them who had the most contentious relationship one time basically said, you know, everyone else agrees with me that you're wrong about this. Just no one will say it to your face. Basically saying like all the friendships that you're like investing in now and the places where you feel belonging aren't as legitimate or aren't what you think. You hear enough of those kind of comments in life and it just builds a narrative of like, oh, my queerness affects my belonging. I can even get to a good place in my life or in my relationships. Like those friendships that I was starting to develop there were really great, but then people can poke at those anyways, you know, and still tap sure. into those deep insecurities. Y'all, you are going to love today's episode. Have you ever experienced one of those personalities where the whole room just brightens up and you find this inner peace and calmness? That's what happened when I sat with today's guest. In our episode today, she talks of questions around belonging, gender, but we kind of land on this whole topic of the whack-a-moles that come up within our own bodies, the triggers that activate old wounds and keep us from being present in this moment right here, right now. She's a brilliant person, and I really think that a lot of us will resonate with her questions and her challenges. In today's episode, we not only talk about confidence, but how to step through the fear and identify triggers within our body so that we can reclaim our own sense of genuineness, but also our power. I hope you enjoy take a listen. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about what's going on and we'll just kind of dive right in. Uh, did you want me to introduce myself? Um, yeah, yeah, let's we usually do that at the end, but you're you are on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm Carmi. I live in Johnson City, Tennessee. That's you know, Appalachia for people who don't maybe know. Um, I use she, her pronouns. Um, I identify as a lesbian. Mm. Yeah, there's other important stuff about me, but I suppose that'll come up when it comes up. I suppose so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I loved your, your video, the one that you sent us, but tell us a little <laughs> bit about What's going on? It sounds like you're kind of in a very loving, but um, maybe challenging situation. A lot of questions coming up for you. Sure. Well, I'd say I frequently bump into insecurities relating to my sense of belonging uh, as okay. a queer person um, that kind of can affect my relationships or the things that are important to me in life. Mm -hmm. um, and I think those are rooted in even like the childhood experiences of homophobia and stuff that um, sort of I internalized as a kid. And I'm just, I guess maybe I'm becoming more consciously aware when I bump into those things or when they come up. I wouldn't say they're like, you know, overwhelming me in my life or anything. It's just like, oh, this is something I'm noticing and something that's like worth investigating and kind of being more conscious of, you know? For sure. Mm. 
Yeah, tell me about that sense of belonging. Where is it getting triggered? Are there certain certain circumstances? Because that sounds really painful. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it does get triggered sometimes, but mostly right now in my life, it gets reaffirmed a lot. I have, um, I kind of have like chosen family here. It's just okay. a, 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 some friends that are a married couple and they actually started doing uh, foster care in November and kind of include me as much as possible in that process. You know, they count me as family as much as they can. You know, I'm on their like Spotify premium and stuff like that. That's awesome. uh, and they, they use the F word for me, you know what I mean? So that's, that's pretty meaningful. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, just, I guess what I've been realizing, I guess at the core of my personhood, uh, something I deeply need is to feel like I belong to communities or groups. And it's something that maybe I've always often struggled with. Um, mm -hmm. And I just bump into that from time to time. So <laughs> for example, like if somebody I had a I think I sent that video into in you right after I'd had sort of somebody poked at sort of made a sort of comment that poked at like that really valued relationship with um, that couple who I sort of have as my chosen family. They basically said something to the effect of like to minimize my role in their lives or something like that, you know? And mm -hmm. I think the, the tricky thing is, <clears throat> and I guess this is why I sent it in as a video. Well, one, I think that uh, belonging is really important as queer people uh, For sure. in general, but maybe, maybe it's something that gets intentionally broken or, um, warped for queer people particularly and I kind of realized in that moment <clears throat> that some of the fears and insecurities that their comment bumped into were weren't just related to me as a person but were related to me as a queer person in my experience mm -hmm. so like for example <clears throat> when I worked I worked as a missionary in Uruguay for three years and um okay. And so I moved there not really knowing anyone on my team and things like that. And it was a non-affirming environment. And I had accepted that, you know, I was committed to just doing my best and making it work for all of us. Um, but moving to a new country, you know, you really need to be able to find community and supportive environment. And I was hoping to find that within my team. But I remember one of my teammates saying, after we'd had like initial conversations of me coming out and talking about you know, how we were gonna work with that within the environment that we had. One of them who I had the most contentious relationship one time basically said, you know, everyone else agrees with me that you're wrong about this. Just no one will say it to your face. I'm the only one that'll be honest with you. Sort of like, oh. yeah, <laughs> basically saying like, all the friendships that you're like investing in now and the places where you feel belonging are, aren't as legitimate or that uh aren't what you think you know yeah <laughs> that is a very mean thing to say yeah and probably just rooted in that person's personal difficulties at the moment you know but mm -hmm. it's kind of 
it's not the only time someone said something like that you know those kind of things sure it's almost like you hear enough of those kind of comments in life and it just builds a narrative of like oh mm -hmm. my queerness affects my belonging mm -hmm. and and even once you i think the hard thing is i can even get to a good place in my life or in my relationships like those friendships that i was starting to develop there were really great but then people can poke at those anyways you know and still tap sure. into those deep insecurities mm -hmm. and i think i was reflecting on it getting ready for our conversation and i i remember it goes back as far as like being four years old um really yeah the um well i guess <clears throat> at that time i didn't know what gay was but mm -hmm. <clears throat> I knew, <laughs> I knew I didn't like to wear dresses or didn't, I knew what gender roles were and that I didn't quite fit them, you know? And mm -hmm. like, I'll give you an example. I got suspended from preschool a couple times. Like I, I threw Power Rangers at some kids and stuff like that. <laughs> like I get, I get that you, you shouldn't throw Power Rangers at someone, you know? So obviously my parents had to like do something about that. But the tricky thing was, even from that age, the fact that I was, what I like to play with was Power Rangers and who I like to play with was boys. Mm -hmm. uh, that, like, uh, that was conflated with the problematic behaviors that like went along with my play, if that makes sense. Sure. So, like, <clears throat> even the message wasn't just like, throwing things at people is bad. <laughs> the message was throwing things at people is bad. And the fact that you like Power Rangers is probably connected to the fact that you're, you know, doing this problematic behavior. Sure. Absolutely. How did, how did your parents handle that? You're getting suspended, the gender, your gender expressions. Yeah. I don't exactly have strong memories of, you know, specific situations but I remember <laughs> I think it was really hard for my parents like I don't think they knew what to do um mm -hmm. like I just I think it was totally unexpected especially my mom always wanted a girl and I was her only girl you know and mm -hmm. so I think it was a long it was almost like my whole childhood and adolescence was her sort of learning to adjust to that and struggling with that um mm -hmm. And kind of always trying to encourage me to try and keep trying like <laughs> more traditionally feminine things, which I just honestly had no interest in. The message from home was definitely that um, not conforming to gender norms in that way was, <laughs> was not going to be helpful for me in the world. And specifically, like, I mean, the first time I knew what gay was I didn't know that I was gay but I just knew the context taught me that it was something you shouldn't be right uh, mm -hmm. and and I guess more specifically to this conversation the context of it taught me that like if you are that it will affect your ability to belong um to in your family in your community in the world right. you know? like that genuine belonging mm-hmm yeah, absolutely. Tell me if I'm wrong, but you strike me as a very observant, sensitive <laughs> person. 
Is that well, accurate? <laughs> I would say emotionally observant. Um, no, like, uh, like you're calculating data. This. Oh yeah! Data. Oh yes. yeah! I'm. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, very data oriented. You're uh -huh. you're right about that. Yes. I'm not circumstantially observant, so I don't notice things in my surroundings as much. But sure. emotionally, I would say so. Mm -hmm. Almost like a researcher, like in the wild, <laughs> collecting data. <laughs> well, this is funny because I tell my partner, I tell her, like every time something new happens, I tell her like, oh, that's a new data point for me to include. In the <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I can imagine. I can hear it. <laughs> yeah. The reason why I say that is because a, a brilliant little kiddo who's trying to create the connections that they're hungry for will collect the data they need to know what not to do, what mm. to do, how to code shift, how to shape shift. And the end result will be a narrative that says, because I am this person, I must be wrong. Mm -hmm. And that kind of data collection, that ending conclusion to the hypothesis can be utterly painful. And it can oftentimes be a narrative that's too rooted. Yeah, and I would almost say it's mm -hmm. interesting the phrasing you use because I am this person, because I would say even before I could, I had the opportunity to really form an identity it was mm -hmm. almost like don't be this person you know right, don't right. identify with those things uh mm -hmm. avoid it at all costs and be uh be what's expected or what will be uh, safe but, yeah yeah so maybe a little um nerdy science lesson for you here <laughs> just because you love data <laughs> this might help a little bit yeah so basically we have explicit knowing um two plus two equals four i live on elm street that sort of thing mm -hmm. but then we have this thing called the subcortical nuclei and it's mm -hmm. made up of se several different regions in the brain the fight flight or freeze a machine which we call the amygdalas, there's two of them, the hippocampus, the thalamus, the hypothalamus, the basal ganglia, they, and a couple other portions, but they create what we call implicit knowing. And this is the knowing that we live out of without knowing we're living out of it or from mm -hmm. it. Yeah. And so it's the part of us that can be on the telephone and make it home in the car and wonder how the heck we got home. Um, it's the part of us that when we're really occupied with the television show, we could reach for the cup of tea and take a drink. Hmm. But it's also the part of us that remembers these very implicit determinations of who we are. I am something wrong, so hide that part of you when you walk into this room but when you walk into this room, you can let it out. Mm -hmm. And that implicit knowing is operating all the time. This is the part of us that can house addictions, depression, anxiety. And so that implicit knowing plays a really big part of our day to day. 
So if we were going to kind of tune out the world, okay. and if we were just going to go internally for a second, as mm -hmm. you're talking about kind of this trigger, not belonging, the Power Rangers, <laughs> we're just going to kind of do a little body scan. Oh, okay. Where do you feel this in your body? Ooh, I yeah. feel... <laughs> uh nervousness in my voice okay and, uh like in the part of my stomach maybe two inches behind where my belly button is maybe a little bit higher okay sure my upper abs i guess mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i almost feel like a sense of departure from most of the rest of my body like mm -hmm. i can't just feel it if that makes sense for sure like you can't access it mm -hmm. yes so one more step. If this sensation had a voice, what is it telling you? It's really hard for me to listen to its voice because it just, it, it's like, I guess it's more of like the freeze feeling. Okay. Let's pay attention to that. What is that freeze telling you? You're not safe run you don't belong hmm. okay just give me a second here yeah take your time <sighs> i guess I guess what it's telling me is it could be dangerous to proceed. Yes. Mm -hmm. What is it that feels dangerous? The vulnerability? I think it's both the vulnerability and the fact that like <clears throat> for so long, the way it was like so much of how I was allowed to talk about these things was so censored and like, I guess sharing about my queer experiences, I faced a lot of gaslighting for such a long time that it's like, I have this internalized fear of saying the wrong thing or uh, talking about part of my queer experience in a way that like people could misconstrue or mm -hmm. um, that wouldn't also just, I there's a lot of hard things that are included in that and but I wouldn't want to um I'd want to do right by anybody that I was talking about you know and I wouldn't want to paint anybody negatively in a picture that's just one moment or one thing that they did but you know that's just not who they are as a holistic person it's just sometimes only the negative can come out when you're talking about a hard experience mm -hmm. sure sure it's like you want to talk about the pain other people caused you, but in a way that protects them or doesn't incriminate them more than what should be. Yeah, and I think it's also, that's part of it, but I think part of it is just a fear that <clears throat> if any of that comes out, people will delegitimize whatever I have to say. Mm, sure. You know, like the, the raging gay <laughs> Sure. Mm -hmm. The complainer, <laughs> the, the whining baby. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. 
Yes, I wonder if part of the gaslighting was telling you that your pain really isn't pain. Yeah, or hurt. Mm -hmm. I remember it happened when I was a missionary, okay? This took me a long time to figure out, but <clears throat> there were moments, I was there for three years, and there were moments when things were really difficult because of the homophobic environment and things that I was facing, and I couldn't have put that word to it at the time, but things started to come up, you know, so I would there were a couple like affirming or supposed allies within the organization, people who I thought might be safe. And I reached out to three different people at different times and tried to like bring up within a larger conversation, like, hey, this is hard for me and I'm, I need some help, some advice, what to do here. And every single time they like diverted the conversation, changed it to talking about like, well, that's not the issue. Let's talk about how you could be a better team member, you know? Mm -hmm. um, mm. And so it's just like, yeah, I got a lot of experience with people telling me it's wrong to just acknowledge things that happen, you know, to be right. honest. Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest things about this there's something we call the ego split and we can get into that. I think we've talked about that on other episodes, but it's this idea that we begin second guessing our own moral compass mm -hmm. or maybe our preferences. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. that hits real hard. <laughs> yeah. How so for you? How are you experiencing that? I just, I second guess everything. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I kind of put things through the gauntlet of like poking at them from every angle before I can feel sure of them. Like, for example, I'll, I'll even ask friends for their thoughts on something and I'll, I'll end up going with what I originally thought after I make them talk about it. Um, but <laughs> it's because there's like, I can't, it's hard for me to feel confident in my own opinion uh, until I like see how it lays out there in the, mm -hmm the world or other people that I respect what they think you know for sure but I think you said it just beautifully I have trouble being confident in my own opinion mm -hmm. that's because we come with this very important truth like this is hurting me and time and time again people say no it isn't you should try harder yeah like I can relate to that like from a very early age, if you have these likes or opinions or thoughts, it's problematic. Mm -hmm. So like learning very early to squelch those. Right, right. Uh -huh. Yes. And I think that it's um, in the way that it's almost like we are trained to think that our own opinions or our own emotions betray us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted to express this pain to someone who was trustworthy, but they told me it was my fault. Now I can't trust my own emotions and my own opinion because they always get me in trouble. Yeah. Or they make me feel more rejection, more disconnection than belonging. Mm -hmm. And the tricky thing is, there, it's not just like there's one person or one experience that I could connect that to. It's like, throughout the course of my life experience right right sort of create that narrative that for feels really sure. believable mm -hmm. and i don't know if this is accurate for you it's different for all of us but 
we have that explicit knowing that says, you know, we walk away from one of those experiences and we're like, gosh, that was hurtful or, or whatever we might be thinking explicitly. But implicitly, the amygdala just took in a piece of information and it said, this feels painful to me. Then the amygdala tells the hippocampus, every time I'm in this situation, remind me how to feel. Hmm. Those two little things pieces of our brain are sitting right on top of the brain stem. Mm -hmm. And so when the amygdala is triggered and the hippocampus remembers how to fill, those two centers in the brain tell the brain stem how to push out a signal throughout the rest of the body down mm -hmm. the spinal cord to say, remember that this is shameful or remember that this is where we hide. Remember that this is where we second guess and doubt, filter, buffer, and we kind of have this whole system devoted to keeping us safe by allowing us to hide or doubt, not mm -hmm. express our opinion. Yeah, and the tricky thing is that whole system was reinforced for the majority of my life, you know? So even when I get sure. to sort of progress and personal growth and stuff, it's like <clears throat> that stuff takes a lot of intentional time of working through things to really for sure uh it's it, I, I call it a whack-a-mole with my uh <laughs> with my therapist it's like it's this you never play that game at chuck e cheese oh i love that game <laughs> it's like the traumatic triggering things that just pop up and mm -hmm. then you just whack them down and then exactly. there's another one that pops up least convenient you know and it's For like sure. you might be going about your life great and a real adult and maturing and everything and it's just like the stupid shit just keeps whack-a-mole mm -hmm. popping up out of the ground popping up for sure yeah. yes yeah and it's usually not the most convenient time is it no <laughs> yes <laughs> yes i know yeah i have um a 12-week-old puppy at home right now and it's very common that when I turn around and walk away from him, he thinks I'm playing. So he'll nip at my calves and it is the most painful thing in the planet. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm afraid to walk away from him. <laughs> Maybe that's what he's up to. He's training me to stay nearby. Maybe that's what's happening. <laughs> but I do think that we are trained, right? All hmm. of those subconscious experiences train us. Mm-hmm to say, don't, I don't know, believe in yourself or don't go there. Don't express yourself. Don't believe that. Especially a sense of belonging. <clears throat> because it yeah. sounds like you have a really beautiful chosen family surrounding you right now. Mm -hmm. And after several years of receiving and, and creating those implicit messages, I do agree with you. All of that self-work is so hard because we have to undo a lot. I think it's almost kind of like those, those little experiences add up like an emotional tattoo. Mm -hmm. And the self-work is like saying, how do I simply will away a tattoo? That, that might sound impossible to a lot of people. Hmm. Yeah, and it's just frustrating because you can do a lot of work and feel really great about yourself and the stupid whack-a-mole still pops up from mm -hmm. time to time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, Cyrus, taking a drink of water. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they will. 
um, all of that data, all of that content, those whack-a-moles, they live in the amygdala. Mm -hmm. They live in the limbic system and they're just hiding and ready to go because they, that's the body's way of keeping us safe. It's not safety, but that's the best the body can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting. I was actually talking to my therapist about this. She calls it like your defenders. And mm -hmm. she was saying like, everybody's got some different defenders who are, you know, have been built into our system out of a need for safety. And part of like being in a, trying to work, you, do your work emotionally or therapeutically is like looking at them and saying like when is this useful to me and actually protecting me and when is it just problematic no longer needed for right. my sake you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. hope you're enjoying the show so far the team and i have been so excited about some of the episodes we've been able to put together that we'll be releasing soon one of the reasons I love these episodes so much is because they are from people just like us. People thumbing through TikTok or hopping on Grindr and Tinder and exploring the world and bumping into their own insecurities or challenges that keep them from living the love lives and relationships they crave. We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions at all, it is your story and your voice that make this show so special. Hop on over to www.iamclinic.org forward slash queer hyphen relation tips. Fill out the Google form if you want to be on the show. We would love to have you as a guest. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the show. I want to see if we can uh, allow it to always be I want to say informative. Hmm. You know, there's there's kind of this idea of standing at the whack-a-mole machine and mm -hmm. you're sweaty and you're hot and you're thirsty <laughs> and you're super focused and you're just ready to whack these things, right? Mm -hmm. But what does it look like to set down the little whacker <laughs> <laughs> and just to take maybe five steps back and watch the whack-a-moles come and go. Hmm. It's a very different experience because hmm. when we're so focused and hot and sweaty and we're standing there and we're dehydrated and we're sick of these things, they become our whole world. Where are they coming? How are they gonna come? Which one next? Can I get it? Will I be able to? And our own wounding almost becomes our own enemy. Mm-hmm. And then I think there's this really beautiful way of taking those five step backwards and just watching the system. Because I think that's when I get uh, the ability to say, oh my gosh, those little things, they're just plastic. <laughs> and look at the paint, it's kind of crappy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they come for two seconds, they make a little noise and then they go away. And if we can kind of objectify, we get, a, we get the opportunity for a couple of different things. One, to not feel like they're our enemy any longer, mm -hmm. but now we get the opportunity to really address them. Hmm. Where did that whack-a-mole come from? And if this is not my enemy, it must be for my good. So what is it teaching me? And my thought 
is it's always teaching us toward the opposite of what it's mm. telling us. Right, because it almost, what I connect to from that, tell me if I'm on the right track here, is it's like, <clears throat> for example, when I had that, the initial example that I gave you of someone poking at the legitimacy of my chosen family and friendship, um, it kind of made me really evaluate it and develop this bulk of evidence of like, you're wrong. <laughs> like, yeah, yes. <laughs> you don't know what the F you're talking about. Exactly. Exactly. But no, that's absolutely, that's brilliant. I might even encourage maybe one more step toward, so if the trigger says you don't belong, mm -hmm. I would really then seek out the belonging. And that mm -hmm. might mean a really vulnerable moment going back to your chosen family and saying, hey, this is what someone told me today. Man, that really hurt. Mm -hmm. And I believe that you guys really love me. You're using that family word for me. Mm -hmm. And then to let them affirm that as well. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness, Carney, don't believe mm -hmm. that you are here. You are ours. We're never going anywhere. And it's that kind of vulnerability for us to express our pain in the safe environment mm -hmm. because we get this beautiful feedback that then rewrites the implicit knowing. Mm -hmm. Hearing those words of affirmation and belonging, it does something in the amygdala that says, ah, I no longer need that whack-a-mole. Mm -hmm that one can go away. And our vulnerable, our, our whack-a-moles are the things, not our enemies, but they're actually driving us back towards the thing we really need to heal. Hmm. Yeah, I think that hits for me. Yeah? Mm hmm How so? What's coming up? Well, so <clears throat> I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, uh, why well, I didn't, I like thought about having that vulnerable conversation, but I didn't quite. Mm -hmm. It's hard. <laughs> back, in, back in December. Um, but I did, I did after that say, say to myself, like, what, well, what do I need here? Like, <clears throat> I feel pretty good about these relationships, but what do I need to fortify or build up here that um, will kind of, <clears throat> in a world where whack-a-moles are gonna pop up will make me better suited to sort of handle those and not be just like crushed by them, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so I think after that moment was kind of like a, a wake up for me of like, cause I was kind of feeling really good in those friendships, you know? And so it was like, oh, maybe there are still areas here where like I need affirmation or I have, um, I just need, I need to, to sort of solidify the foundation of these friendships and feel really rooted in them in a more explicit way that like, you know, like you were saying, I need to hear from those people um, that love and belonging, like just mm -hmm. explicitly stated. Yeah, absolutely. There's a really important distinction that I think might be helpful. Mm -hmm. And we, we all do both of these. So we, we do both other esteeming and self-esteeming. Oh. 
okay? <laughs> Other esteeming is when we, we use this really sneaky tactic, we call it negative control. So negative mm -hmm. control is this idea of like um, provoking someone into soothing us Oof. so that we feel like we matter to them. So something like, um, babe, do you love me? And then it's like, yes, of course, I love you. And it's like, well, now you're just saying it because because I asked you to. You know? <laughs> yes. So there's that negative control, that provocation in there. But then there's the I'm only you're only saying this because I provoked you. That's the other esteeming. That's okay. going to be really, really temporal, fleeting. And it might actually make us feel more shame than belonging. Hmm. And, and we all do that. Um, we do it in text messages. We do it in dating apps. I mean, we do it everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. The opposite though, because asking for affirmation can almost sound like other esteeming, mm -hmm. but I think it's actually an expression and a practice of vulnerability when it's coming from that self-esteem place. Mm -hmm. And I think you're sitting right there. This idea of saying, hey, I, I'm pretty sure you love me and I can mm -hmm. feel that within me, but I just need you to remind me. I want to fortify this. I really liked your word. I really want to fortify the confidence that I belong with you. Yeah. And usually, you know, I think the way I would express that maybe is saying like, hey, I'm having a hard right time right now because something triggered me to just be doubting a lot of things. It has nothing to do with you guys, but I just really need to hear this message again. And it would be really helpful to me if you could say it. I know and believe that that's true for you, but I just need to hear it. Exactly. Because what you're doing here that really distinguishes other esteeming from self-esteem is you're overtly asking for it. Mm, okay as opposed to fishing for it or provoking for it. And it's that, interesting. Mm -hmm. I just, I actually just did that the other day. Um, I had a hard conversation with a, a mentor who's really important and close to me. And at the end of it, I asked her straight up, I, cause she's always been supportive of me, but I asked her like, are you affirming, are you fully affirming of LGBTQ people? And she just couldn't answer. Um, mm. it, it was, it kind of baffled her or, flustered her maybe um and after that <laughs> it was kind of hard for me to process and so I reached out to a couple friends and I was just like hey I had a hard moment with somebody who just I really love who couldn't say that they're affirming and I just I know that you are I just need to hear you say it because yeah I don't yeah mm -hmm. yeah absolutely the thing that we're doing here is we're we're expressing the need for help hmm. and the the self-esteem piece in this says i know that i'm valuable enough to you that i can ask for it mm -hmm. i know that you cherish me enough that i can ask for your help other esteeming says i don't think i'm valuable to ask for help so i'm just going to poke it out of you hmm. Carney, I think from my perspective, after listening and chatting with you, you 
you seem like you've done a lot of really intentional work to see yourself as valuable. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can hear it. It's amazing. It really is. Well, and it's, you know, the cool thing is it is my work that I've been doing, but also so many people who have loved me and come alongside me and supported that, you know, mm -hmm. um, and years, 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 years of therapy. Sure. Um, certainly not in isolation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can't. <laughs> you, uh, I think you should become a, a psychotherapist. <laughs> well, here, which, oh, yeah. I can hear. Yeah. But yeah, I think we do need each other. And that's why I kind of wanted to make the distinction so, so um, profoundly between other esteeming and self-esteem mm -hmm. to encourage people to find that sense of self-value that says I am precious enough to ask for help mm. from the people who I trust. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's interesting because one of the things I identified, I think in 2020 as like something I needed to work on was asking for help from people mm. who love and trusting. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So let's just maybe flip our perspective a little bit. Okay. When those whack-a-moles come up, mm -hmm. do you, I would really encourage you to objectify the experience and let that almost be like a sign on the road that says you turn. Because what we normally do with triggers is we kind of dive head, like we just dive straight forward into them. <laughs> do you know what I mean oh yeah that that was mm -hmm. no laughter. yeah yeah <laughs> when we talk about shame here at the clinic we say that we can easily dive straight forward into the the fallen trifecta mm -hmm. and when we when we experience those triggers and the whack-a-moles are doing their thing we go straight to I am powerless I can't create anything different in my environment or my relationships. Mm -hmm. I'm valueless, no one will want me. Mm -hmm. And because I have quote unquote, this problem, I shouldn't expect life to get any better because I'm worthless. Mm -hmm. And if we don't have that sign on the road, we just dive straight into it instead of letting those whack-a-moles be our guides. Because remember, they're there to protect us. They're sitting in the fight, flight, or freeze center of the brain. We just have mm -hmm. to learn how to see them as our protector. I like your therapist word, our defenders. Can you explain more of what, I was a little confused by the initial wording you used. You said objectify them. Um, yeah. So I understand what you're saying not to do. I, um, can you be a little more explicit about what you're saying the alternative is? Sure, absolutely. I, it's almost like making the whack-a-mole an experience, mm -hmm. almost like um, a burp. You know, we feel <laughs> that thing at the top of our stomach and we're like, oh, a burp is coming. And we can almost kind of like take a deep breath and move our abdomen and we can facilitate that burp coming up. Mm -hmm. And we take it as nothing more than an experience. Hmm. Or we take it as a sign of, I just drank that ginger ale or that chili was really hot. 
it means something mm-hmm. to us. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't have like value attached to it or certainly exactly. not our personal value. Yeah. It, yes. Definitely not our worth. Hmm. And okay, so when those, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when those defenders are going, those little whack-a-moles, those triggers, instead of diving into that fallen trifecta, we can take those five steps back or mm-hmm. get, you know, like 30 feet above, like we're in a helicopter looking down on something mm-hmm. saying, oh my goodness, there's pain, there's shame, there's fear. Okay, make a U-turn. Now I'm going to go back to the people that I can trust. And I think I can go back to the one person I can trust the most, and that's myself. Hmm. Can I ask you a question about that? Yeah. So sometimes I have this internal pushback when I try to do that, (laughs) that maybe people often do this where they're like, well, I could, I don't want to go to the other end of the extreme. Uh, And it's just like, you look at them like, well, just because of who you are, you're really not going to end up on the other end of the extreme. The, (laughs) um, but so sometimes I have this internal pushback when I try to do that, that says like, you can't just throw your defenders out completely, you know, like mm-hmm. sometimes it's use like fight or flight can get mixed up and, and sort of used to turn everything into a survival situation, but some things actually are. Um, mm-hmm. Sure. And, and like almost <laughs> there's, yeah, I guess for me, it's, it's, it's hard to nuance the, um, the usage of the defenders to where, um they're they have their place in time but they need to not have as much space or influence on me in certain aspects where I've learned to let them absolutely yes I think the key word for me is influence I loved that word and what I mean by that is if the defenders have influence to teach me anything other than I am completely valuable. Hmm. We need to objectify them. Okay. If they're carrying, in other words, saying the same thing, if they're carrying a negative message about your own position in the world, those are the ones we need to use as a U-turn. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. That's really helpful for me. Yeah, I'm good yeah. at following rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> but that, it seems like it served you well. You know, sometimes I think, I think I've learned the place where, like, I do like structure and I do like rules. And I think most of them are there for a reason. But I think I've learned... <clears throat> how and when it's necessary to go against them, whether they're just my own personal rules or society's rules, whatever. Just that like, that's okay sometimes, you just have to know why and it has to be in line with your core Mm -hmm. values. Exactly, yes, yes, absolutely. A hundred percent because I think as queer people, we have to break social rules and they're not legitimate rules. They're conforming, they're patriarchal. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we have to say, is this my rule? Because I can't break my own rules. 
Yeah, and I think an even trickier thing for me has been to realize the interconnectedness of all the homophobic rules, you know? Mm -hmm. um, it's like, a web. Yeah, like being a Christian and being like, it's not just the don't be gay message that's rooted in homophobia, you know? It's a lot of the, it's connected to, to the, a lot of the ways people talk about sexual ethics or mm -hmm. um, other ways that we relate to each other with mm -hmm. such a like fear based, uh sort of motivation mm -hmm. sure absolutely yes and again i think that's because on that implicit layer we're carrying a sensation of guilt hmm. or shame and so that implicit knowing helps us obey the rules that we shouldn't be participating in mm-hmm I was uh, fortunate one time to sit down with Marianne Williamson. I don't know if you know who she is. She's kind of one of my favorite authors. Um, but she said, Isaac, the people uh, who think they conspire with God are actually not. She said it a lot more eloquently than I just did. But <laughs> this idea that people who say they love God are actually not conspiring with God. And I think those are the people who are making rules out of homophobia and not love. Mm -hmm. They're making rules that teach the queer person to devalue themselves. And that's not love-based at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's almost like, it's not always intentionally telling the queer person to devalue themselves, but it's like rules that were made for straight white men you know sure, sure. Uh, mm -hmm. and it's like some of them aren't explicitly about gayness it's just like they just don't fit for other mm -hmm. people sure uh, yeah yeah so i think just yeah i would really pay attention to those u-turn signs hmm. mm -hmm. and let those relationships really reaffirm you but I also think there's this, this is kind of what I was alluding to earlier. The one person that we can trust usually is ourselves. Mm. And what I mean by that is you're the one who's going to therapy. You're the one who's doing all the work. Mm -hmm. And I always talk about it like this. You know, when I was 11 years old, we had just moved into a new house and there were these children playing across the street at the park. And my mom told my dad, Joe, go take him to the park and introduce him to those little kids. Mm -hmm. My The point of my little metaphor here is to say sometimes we might not be able to provide the resources for ourselves as mm -hmm. though we're a good parent. So a parent has to get in the car and go access the resources. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we can do enough to say, you know, Isaac, find that voice at the top of your abdomen. It's telling you don't go any further. And I have what it takes to be to create the safety for myself. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes it's, I need affirmation. So I'm going to get in the car and drive to the people whom I love and get the affirmation I need. And in both instances, we're creating, we're resourcing what we need. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it sounds like, Carney, you can really trust yourself to do that. <laughs> uh, I like deeply believe that it's like hard uh -huh. for me. <laughs> Initially, just say yes, a hundred percent. But you know, getting there. Yeah, 
practice, right? Yeah. I may have said this before, but here on the podcast, but I think vulnerability is almost like going bungee jumping. Hmm. I, I went bungee jumping when I was really young and I climbed this ladder that was 70 feet into the sky to this crane and the whole way up, it was like, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing? And then, yes, <laughs> yeah. So they hook me in and I have the harness and I knew that if I did not jump right away, I wasn't going to jump at all. Hmm. And so the moment they said three, two, one, I jumped and it was like my muscles were doing the opposite of what my brain was telling me to do. <laughs> <laughs> and I, re I still remember that free fall. I remember hugging the little cushion around the bungee cord with everything in my body mm -hmm. until I felt that bungee cord catch me and mm. this really smooth bouncing mm -hmm. and then I knew I was safe mm. and that's like vulnerability you know the first time we do it it's petrifying but mm -hmm. the more that we begin trusting that bungee cord we just jump off this thing and sooner or later we're doing swan dives off the platform because we know that we're going to be safe can I ask a, a question about that yeah um so something I kind of struggle with and maybe everybody has different boundaries about who they're willing to be vulnerable with you know mm -hmm. uh, i think my boundaries are pretty tight uh sure. like i really feel people out uh i kind of you know let them show me what they're about before i um get too vulnerable but my my therapist told me and i thought this was mind-blowing she said there's some people who just the first time they meet somebody can just feel a deep sense of intimacy or connection and be very vulnerable and i was my my initial reaction in my gut was like that makes no sense those people are <laughs> sure. um but she she kind of opened my mind to the idea that like <clears throat> not that one way is better than the other necessarily, but there's a range on which we operate in terms of uh, our comfortability or like what, even when you say like, okay, let's practice vulnerability, like where and when you decide to do that, because <clears throat> I guess there's like this, that thing in my gut was coming from this place of like, well, there's people who aren't safe to be vulnerable with, you know? Mm -hmm. I wonder if you had any thoughts around that. Absolutely. You know, I think there's a couple of ways we can go about this based on our Enneagram type, excuse me, different types will do different things. Mm -hmm. So we're all going to approach relationships from a kind of a personality style. Mm -hmm. um, there's, do you know what your Enneagram type is? <laughs> can I guess? Do you know? You can guess. <laughs> I think you're a six. Oh, you? yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Uh -huh. yeah yes. sure am uh -huh. <laughs> i've been picking up these little data points today <laughs> with you <laughs> oh, yes no. but oh, your type God. six is going to need to know that you're safe before oh, yeah. you make any movement for sure any judgments you know and i it might be easy to think that the person who can just welcome people in with a nice vulnerability or have more of a radar to assess that they might be more healthy or somehow more mature. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. As a type six, if you were to know that you were safe and welcome people in and they hurt you, 
we could always put up a boundary then. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean once they're in, they're always in. But right. that's, you know, that's not the six way. Six is say, hey, I need to assess you. And once I know I'm safe with you, then you're in and you're always in. It's like Sweden. Yeah, sixes are like, mm-hmm. well, what I would say is like commitments are very important to us. Sure, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so I would not shame that part of you. If you do this assessment and you hear those little whack-a-moles going out and you're making U-turns like crazy going back to the, the home base, that's okay. That's okay. I might, I speculate that as you practice this vulnerability and you build up that um, extended chosen family and you have all of these beautiful relationships surrounding you, mm-hmm. it's going to feel more and more safe and you'll, be, you'll have practice vulnerability more and more. And so it's almost kind of like we update our radar. Mm-hmm. I say, Carney, if that's always kind of your default setting as a six, that's a beautiful setting because that's how y'all create the incredible affection and loyalty that you have. And I would not want to adjust that system at all. Hmm. And I think too, what I would add to that is <clears throat> part of it is, you know, for myself, but then it's like figuring out how to like welcome other people into that sense of belonging and safety mm-hmm. and create that for other folks, which I think is especially important within the queer community. Um, oh, for sure. It's, that's a refuge for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wonder if this might be a helpful thing to contemplate on and meditate on, but in all the places where I've been taught that I don't belong, or all the reasons why I've been taught that I don't belong. Mm-hmm. If those defenders are to point me back to something, what's actually beautiful about me? Because I think we need to replace those narratives. Mm-hmm. We've been taught that the queer love is makes us less belonging or the masculinization or the feminization or fill in the blank, right? And so all these defenders are put in place to say, oh, nope, not that one, stop that, protect yourself. And what if all of those things that were originally shamed are our assets? Mm -hmm. And those U-turns are not only to point us back to get that beautiful affirmation and practice self-esteem, but to reclaim I love this word. One of my therapists taught me this, but to remember, and she didn't mean it in a cognitive way. She almost meant it like putting Humpty Dumpty back together again, like remembering, putting that member that you were back in place. And almost in that process, like building it back stronger than it even started. Oh, I love that. Of course. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that practicing vulnerability is multifunctional. Bungee jumping, it builds courage, stamina, self-trust, self-worth. We understand how capable we are, how beautifully strong and buoyant love can be. I mean, there's so many things to learn mm-hmm. and reclaim.
I'm assuming that growing up in the Appalachian Mountains, you will experience a lot of gendered roles. Women do this, men do this, and experiencing the tension between these two binaries. But what happens if you're someone who doesn't want to or doesn't experience their own bodies as though they belong on either side of that binary spectrum? I would imagine that belonging will be a very big challenge. You know, belonging isn't a conditional experience that says you belong because fill in the blank, because you believe the same way I do, because you look the same way I do. Belonging says you have a space here because it's yours no matter who you are. That kind of belonging is a rare treat that some of us don't ever get to taste because we live in a world that is too focused on being the right thing and becoming the right thing as opposed to letting ourselves just be who we are. Oftentimes in this show, we talk about the ego split where imagining our desires as one perfect sphere of clay and then over time people and communities and religion come in and take a pinch of that clay and either categorize it as either clean or dirty. And our desires over time are separated into these other like pinched balls of clay that are no longer feel clean or no longer feel dirty. And it's hard to have confidence in what we desire, especially when we wrap shameful behaviors around that desire or create an association between the two. If I say, I want to eat some chocolate cake, but out of my pain, I ate half a sheet cake, I might say, not only was my behavior wrong, but my desire was wrong, almost as though my own body is working against me. Our bodies will remember that experience of shame, and they will keep us from engaging behaviors that lead to shame, except for when the pain is too intense, and then we actually use the one thing that shames us to soothe ourselves, and now we're up in this whole shame-bind experience. But what happens when we start to reclaim those desires and we say, I am precious because I desire that thing. I desire to be held and protected and cared for and seen by another person of my same gender. And that makes me precious. Those desires are the essence of not only who I am, but how I love. And because I know I am precious and I am enough, I can show up in relationships confident, not only that I should belong, but that I have something beautiful to offer. In order to do this, we have to find, as you heard, safe and trustworthy people with whom we can go bungee jumping. Vulnerability is often not the most exciting experience, and this is why I recommend going bungee jumping or practicing vulnerability with safe and trustworthy people. Only then will we get the feedback that actually reflects our true essence as opposed to the reflections of someone else's immaturity. Those whack-a-moles or those defenders are in everybody. They come from attachment fractures or traumas, people who are not nice or just things that are hurtful. And those whack-a-moles originally were designed to keep us safe to avoid those experiences again. But unfortunately... Because our body holds on to them, we also hold on to the pain and the fear, the shame, the self-hatred, the self-critique. In order to use those against us, as we talked about, 
I recommend getting some objectivity. Observe the trigger as it comes up within your body. Objectify it so it's more of an experience than a message of truth. Assess its message, and I might even say recognize where it came from originally, but this time through the lens that you are powerful and precious. That word seems to be on my mind today because I think a lot of us, as we work towards the relationships and love lives that we crave, we must first remember that we are worth it. To today's guest, thank you, thank you, thank you for going bungee jumping with me in front of all of these people. Thanks for being a brave soul to not only share your story with us, but to do the hard work so that you can find love and belonging in the exact forms that you crave. Until next time. Queer Relationships is a podcast sponsored by I Am Clinic, a counseling practice devoted to the LGBTQ plus community with in-person and virtual counseling options available. I Am Clinic. Create the love lives and relationships you crave. Find us online on Instagram at LGBTQ underscore therapy and Facebook at I Am Clinic. That's I-A-M Clinic. <laughs>